0: We'll open up your Bibles. Second Peter chapter one is where we're going to be at this morning. Second Peter chapter one. A couple weeks ago, I was walking through the Castleton Mall, and I noticed a new seating area in the center of the mall, and it was it had a little sign above it. It said charging station. I couldn't actually, I didn't snap a picture of that one, so this is the best I could find. It was kind of like that. Have you guys seen the new, kind of at the Castleton Mall, there's a seating area and there's all these stations where you can charge up your electronic devices and some new signage. I think it was sponsored by St. Vincent Health. And so I was kind of strolling by it, and as I glanced and looked at it, I noticed the three people inside the charging station area seated in the nice, comfortable furniture with their electronic devices all plugged in. All three of them were asleep, I thought as I walked away from that, how ironic. It got me to thinking about, and maybe it's only pastors who think about this kinds of stuff, but it got me to thinking about as I was strolling down the mall. I'm like, "Lord, I wonder what our lives would be like if we paid at least as much attention to our body, our mind and our soul as we do to our electronic devices." I just wondered. I thought, I wonder if the three people who are collapsed in the chairs charging their devices perhaps need a physical, spiritual, or emotional, or mental recharge more than they just need their device with another 20% of charge. And then it got me to thinking about Jesus. And I started thinking about Jesus' life. And the more I get to know Jesus and the more I read about his life in the Gospels, uh, the more I notice how Jesus always had the right response for the right situation at just the right time. Would you like to have that in your life? I'd like to have more of that in my life. I'd like to respond in the everyday moment like he did in his everyday moments because he seemed to always get it right. Shocker, he's God in the flesh, but follow me here. That, Like when Jesus came across a a blind beggar on the side of the road in a very crowded street that was very noisy he had patience for the blind beggar and then there was an outcast leper whom no one would go around whom would just be standing and shouting with a bell on their body unclean unclean jesus he had a a nearness to the leper he would pause and draw near And to the woman caught in adultery, too, there's all kinds of people stirred up about all the sins she committed. Everyone had their stones in their hand ready to sling them. And it was Jesus who responded with such grace for this woman who had fallen on her face in sin. And it was Jesus who would walk into the religious leaders who had the flowing robes and the big stack of religious books and laws, and he would walk up to the Pharisees and have stern and sharp words for them. And he remained mostly silent to the buzzing sound of the Roman rulers and all that they were doing. Jesus just seemed to always, what I'm calling a present moment ness in his everydayness, that I would argue was quite busy. I think Jesus was a really busy guy, like, especially from age 30 to age 33. Would you agree with me? That's when he came out publicly and said, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I'm going to Calvary. From 30 to 33, would you agree with me that his life was quite busy? Would that be an understatement? I would argue that perhaps during that three-year stretch, he's one person on the planet to which most other people on the planet were either flocking to get around, to hear, to find out, not necessarily everybody was jumping on his train, but he was just the kind of person that the more people spent time with him, the more they wanted to be around him. Do you know that's a really good marker for spiritual growth? If you wanna know if your spiritual train is on the right track, ask yourself a question like, am I becoming the kind of person that the more people spend time with me, the more they'd like to spend time with me. That's a good indicator of some really healthy stuff going on spiritually. As opposed to the alternative, would be the train's off the track. If, the, if people spend time with you, and the more they spend time with you, the more they don't want to spend any time with you, that's like some warning lights on the dashboard. But Jesus was the kind of person everywhere he went, crowds would gather and more crowds would gather. There was a busyness in Jesus' everydayness. And the way he responded in the midst of that busyness, I'm really challenged by. And what we're going to look at today is, I don't picture Jesus living with perpetual exhaustion. I don't picture Jesus being overly stressed about the length of his to-do list, though I would argue it was probably longer than any of ours. I don't picture Jesus as kind of rolling around restlessly at night, wondering how he's going to get through what he needs to get through the next day. I see a restfulness in the yoke of Jesus, follow me here, that is a gift that is received and it is a lifestyle that is embraced. The restfulness of Jesus that's found in his yoke, it's a gift we receive and it is a lifestyle that we learn and embrace. Second Peter 1 describes it this way. Here's how Peter, one of those who followed Jesus around very closely, he said it this way. His divine power has given us, circle in your Bibles, everything we need for life. Do you believe that? Do you believe God's done everything he needs to do for you and I to experience the kind of shalom life we've been talking about for the last month and a half? Does God need to do anything more than he's already done for us to experience the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. When I go through the valley of the shadow of death, he'll be near me. Does God need to do anything more for us to experience the kind of shalom life, this fully alive to God life, this eternal kind of life right now, right here? Peter says no. No. His divine power has given us everything we need for life, for your current, everyday, ordinary life, whether it's going really great, whether it's going really bad, or whether it's going really ordinary. Jesus says, uh, Peter says, Jesus that everything that needs to be done for us to find life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory. And goodness. So the series we're moving into for this Lenten season, I've entitled Changed and Changing. Because there are aspects of the Christian life that when you meet Jesus, some things change instantaneously. Hallelujah. Some of you have that testimony. You remember the day, you remember the moment when you met Christ personally for the first time. And at that moment, some stuff changed in your life. You know it, you could talk about it. If we pass the mic around, you testify to it. There is a changed component instantaneously when you meet Jesus. For example, your sin is washed away instantaneously. Hallelujah. And in a moment's time, your life is now hidden with Christ in God instantaneously. Instantaneously, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you and there's this God movement stuff inside your life that you had never experienced before. That's instant change stuff. Instantaneously, your destiny was changed when your physical life ends when you meet Jesus. Instantaneously, you were brought into a yoke that Matthew describes that is easy and a burden that is light. You were invited into Jesus' school of living and you can learn how to live from a master teacher, the most wise and competent and good and strong and generous God ever. You get to be in his class and learn how to live from him because we all gotta learn how to live from somebody. And in a moment's time, you are brought into his yoke in his classroom and you get to learn from him. There is some stuff when you meet Jesus that changes instantaneously. Isn't that a great message of the Christian life? Changed. And that's what Peter's saying here. His divine powers has everything he needs to do. He sent Christ, he sent the Holy Spirit, he gave us his word, he gave us the church, the body of Christ together. Look at all that God has done for us to experience the kind of life he has for us. Now, follow me, and there's some stuff that's changing. Verse five, for this very reason, what reason is he talking about? Based upon all that God has done for us in Jesus, now, what does Peter say? Make every effort. Circle every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities, circle, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what Peter says. In light of all that God has done for us in Jesus, make every effort to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I did not say work for your salvation. Grace and earning are opposites, grace and effort are allies in the Christian life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You don't work for it, it's a gift received. The restfulness of Jesus is first a gift received in his grace, there's some things that can change in his yoke, and then it's a lifestyle learned. There's changing elements. Have you noticed this about the Christian life? Some stuff changed in a moment when you met Christ, but then there's a whole pile of stuff that's on this long journey of changing and transformation and growth. And if you aren't quite sure about that, just ask some people who know you well. Like if you're married, your spouse would have a lot of commentary on this. Or if you have a close circle of friends, roommates, people who work around you, they see you at your worst and your best when you've got the stomach flu and when you don't, when the the people around you and all that, they'll tell you, right, there's some stuff that has absolutely changed in your life, but then they'll also say there's this progressive part that you're on the journey of changing. No one has arrived in this life yet. And if you actually think you've concluded you've arrived, it's actually an illustration of how much yet there's still yet to change. You following me? It's changed, and it's changing. That's the Christian life. And we gotta embrace this journey together. Peter would say, did you notice the, ver, the vocabulary used in verse eight? Here's how you could actually, in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus, Peter said, you could get to the point and get to the end of your life and be ineffective and unproductive. Is that not sobering words for anybody? It is for me. I go, Lord, I don't wanna to get to the end of the run. After all that you've done for us, you sent Christ, you sent the Spirit, you gave us your word, wonderful church, all the things you have poured out, gave a physical body, a mind, a soul. You did all this stuff, and I end up ineffective and unproductive. Verse nine says, it's like a blind man who's been restored with his sight. A blind man who used to walk around like this. Now Jesus comes on, makes him see, and the blind man continues to, with his walking cane, tap around the sidewalk. And Jesus say, "Hey, take your hand off your eye. Open your eyes. You once were blind, but now you see. Live. Become who you already are." So for Peter, there's absolutely no picture in his life of someone who knows Jesus who's not changing. That's not even in the framework he would say, if that's the case, it would be ineffective and unproductive. If you're following Jesus and nothing is really changing, he puts it in the category. It's like a blind man who can see, but you're still walking around with your walk, tapping the sidewalk. You can't see. Peter's like, hey, open your eyes. You've been set free. You've got grace. You've got new life. You've got the spirit. Now live. And as you live in the yoke of Jesus, stuff's going to change. That's normal. That's normal. If you're not changing on that journey, that's abnormal. Something's off the rails. There's always more growth in Christ. So part of that, for those of you who are really hard on yourselves, part of that is to give you a gift of just relax and be in the journey of transformation. It's complicated, it's messy, and it's for your whole life. You're never going to master this. You're never going to get to the point point. say, I got this down, this spiritual transformation thing. I'm so Christ-like in character, I'm going to coast for a while. That, no. The Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books, who knows a lot about changed, would you agree with me? Acts chapter 9, road to Damascus. I'm riding off to Damascus to kill some Christians flash of light, strikes me blind, gives me sight, sets my feet on a rock, cleanses me from my sin. Now I'm going to Damascus to build Jesus' church. Would that be change? It's not a trick question. Would that be change? Yes. But then Paul says, after 25 plus years of walking with Jesus, he writes to Timothy towards the end of his run. He said, hey, Timothy, of sinners, I'm the worst. What's that? That's changing. That's Paul saying, man, I once was blind, but now I see. But oh boy, there's a whole lot of stuff in my character and in my life, in my habits, in my patterns, my attitudes, my words, my actions, that is changing. And he wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Whew. That's one side of real encouragement to us, I hope. If God could use him, what makes some of us think we're kind of, oh, we're outside the bounds of what God could do. Gang. I know so. you've fallen off the wagon and fallen into some stuff, but I would argue you probably haven't gone off the reservation as Paul is the apostle. Paul, I don't think it's been on your list to go and try to arrest a bunch of Christians just because they're preaching in the name of Jesus. That's probably not what you've been thinking about. There's other stuff you're working through. The point is, Peter looks at this and goes, hey, God's done everything he needs to do for us to live the kind of life he's created us to live. The variable is what? Our engagement. You can't change yourself, but guess what? You and I are involved in this process because it's, it's our actual life that's changing. You can't be passive in the relationship and experience the kind of transformation that the New Testament talks about. That, that's not even a picture. The engagement of your, work out your salvation, you're involved in it, but you can't do it yourself. Do you remember the triangle from the last series we looked at for several weeks? It's Jesus's, Model for soul care. Holy Spirit, top of the triangle. The only shot we've got for true, genuine change is life beyond us, that stream of living water. Remember, pouring into the sponge of the soul. That living water coming in is the beginning point for true, genuine change. But that's not the end of the equation. Then what's the bottom left of the triangle? It's our everyday life circumstances. God uses the Holy Spirit, and then he uses the real circumstances of your life right now. Some of you have gone through the kind of week or month that you put in the category of about as bad as it can get, at least in your life so far. Do you know that that's ingredients in the hands of the Spirit to bring some change? Now, it can go one way or the other, but some stuff's usually gonna change when things get real painful and real difficult. Or some of you said goodbye to some loved ones Others of you have had unbelievable breakthroughs. It's the location of your current life's circumstances in the hands of the Spirit, and then what this series is gonna anchor on, is then engaging by direct effort our bodies, our minds, our wills to participate in some spiritual practices that in the hands of the Spirit, in light of the current circumstances of our life, stuff starts changing, It's the intersection of all three. Do you see that? And as we engage in spiritual practices, here's the question we have to keep at the forefront because we fall off the rails on this thing real easy in the Christian life. It gets either in like self-striving side or it gets in self-righteousness side On one side, because you're you're doing so good, there's like a self, kind of a pride thing that kicks in. The other side, you get weary and exhausted because you're working so hard. Those are ditches we fall in with this issue. Here's the question we got to keep at the forefront as we engage in all these practices. Is my love for God and for others growing stronger and deeper? If it's not, you need to reevaluate the practices you're participating in. Is my love for God growing and others growing stronger and deeper? Because you could get up every morning and read your Bible for years and years and years and remain the same bitter, angry, and resentful person. You could come to church for years and years and years and listen biblical preaching, log on to all kinds of podcasts, listen to sermon after sermon, and still not change. That happens. It's like the white elephant in the sanctuary in local church life. Who wants to talk about this? Because it's not just the act of getting up and reading your Bible. You're not going to just get zapped magically by doing that. Reading your Bible is important. But it's all three components working together. There's the Holy Spirit. There's life circumstances and there's spiritual practices all working together to bring a changing component to our life. And we've got to keep at the forefront. Hey, Is what's going on in me, do I sense my love for God? This is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Is my love for God growing stronger and deeper? Is my love for people growing stronger and deeper? If not, time to check, step back, reevaluate what I'm doing with the practices. And the specific topic we're looking at today is, what about this whole issue of living in perpetual exhaustion? What kind of practices can we engage in with direct effort? This is what spiritual practice is. You, with your body, your mind, your will, you engage with direct effort to something. Reading your Bible, praying, coming to church, fasting, we'll talk about several of these. You do something by direct effort in the hands of the spirit, using your current circumstances of your life over the course of time, enables you to do something that you couldn't do by direct effort. Anybody follow that? Several of you have the look like you have no idea what I just said, so I'm going to say that again. But this is what a spiritual discipline is. Spirit, think of it like physical therapy for the body. Spiritual practices are that for the soul. Physical therapy, when you go to it, they stretch you. They strengthen you. They place you into usually very uncomfortable positions where you feel like taking a swing at the therapist at times. And you're moaning and you're groaning and, and, you, and then the other thing is you pay for it. I never, that's a real interesting concept. You're actually paying money for that experience. But what physical therapy does for the body on the other side of that, there's supposed to be a better range of motion, supposed to be more strength that before you engaged in those activities wasn't quite there. Same thing for the soul, spiritual practices. You engage in them with direct effort. Make every effort to add to your faith. 2 like Peter 1.3 and five. So you go, okay, I got to engage with direct effort. What I can do, and then the hands of the Spirit in my everyday life circumstances, over the course of time, I'm going to be able to do what I couldn't formerly do by direct effort. That's what spiritual practice is. That's the changing component. And a good grid to use on, well, what are the practices we look at to prioritize in our life with Jesus as we look at Jesus' life? Because here's what a Christian is. Someone who's a Christian is learning to live their life. You're not learning to live Jesus' life. Jesus already lived his life. It was a great life, a glorious life. He's not gonna live that again on this earth. You're learning to live your life as Jesus would live it if he were you. That's what a Christian does. Because your life is really your current circumstances of your life. In your current family dynamics, your current work situation, health challenges, that's your life, and one of the great temptations of this spiritual journey is you think, if I could just have some other kind of life, then I'd really be on it spiritually. Ah, that doesn't work that way. Your life is your life. And so it's your real life. And then you go, here's what a follower of Jesus does. It goes, okay, what would it be like for Jesus to live my life if he were I? And you look at Jesus' life and you go, what kind of patterns did he live in, circumstances he found himself in, what was he doing, rhythms he lived in, and then you apply those rhythms in your life, in the hands of the Spirit, some stuff's gonna start changing. So on this particular example, we looked at his busy, he was a busy guy, had a lot going on, but he seemed to live with a present momentness in his everyday chaos and noise around him. He seemed to live with kind of a quiet confidence and patience. He didn't seem to live perpetually exhausted. I'm really drawn to that. I wanna know more about that. So, I looked at a couple things in Jesus' life and here are the two things we're gonna work on this week together under this issue of fatigue. I put in your notes uh, layers of fatigue, layers of exhaustion that hit because you know exhaustion isn't just at one level, right? There's, a, there's an exhaustion at the will, decision fatigue. You guys know about this? Those of you who lead in the marketplace and, in, and have to make a lot of decisions in your eight to six window, this is what you feel when you're driving home, and you know the conversation at the dinner table is going to involve more decisions, and inside of you, you don't want to make one more decision. That's decision fatigue. You don't want to decide where you, what you're going to eat. You don't want to decide. You want to talk about family vacation plans. You don't want to decide on the weekend stuff. You're done making decisions. Decision fatigue. Your will's worn out that way. And then there's a mental fatigue that we're all very familiar with, high capacities of learning. Here's the escapist deal with mental fatigue. You just wanna stare at the electronic box for hours. You just wanna check your mind out. Your mind's tired, so just stare at this thing. Physical fatigue, that's obvious. You're just physically worn out. Sometimes for me, it's like, I can't believe how much I'm yawning Like over the course. Anybody ever paid attention to that? I'm like, why have I yawned like five times in the last hour? Shock, maybe, that, maybe my body's trying to tell me something here body fatigue, and then I would call the soul weariness is like the wholeness of life. Soul weariness lands you asleep in a charging station in the middle of the mall. (laughs) That is a weary soul. So how did Jesus live? I don't think Jesus lived that way. I don't think Jesus would be asleep in a charging station at Castleton Mall. But I think he'd have an awful lot going on. So what I see in Jesus' life, two things. Mark 6, 31 because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. That tell you how much business is going on in his life? huh? By the way, the context of this is the feeding of the 5,000. So lest you think your dinner table's plenty chaotic, he had a lot going on there, a lot of hungry people, big crowds. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. He's saying this to the disciples. This is the spiritual practice of sleep. Have any of you thought about sleep as a spiritual practice? Some of you are really excited right now because you like have a, you wanna have a PhD in sleep. That's a discussion for another day. Today we're gonna to lift it up and celebrate the gift of physical sleep. Do you know in 1850, the average American was sleeping nine and a half hours a night? Do you know in 1950, that number dropped to eight hours a night? Do you know what today's average American is sleeping? 6.8 hours. night. All you have to do is interact with any young mother, newer mother, and ask them about the role of sleep deprivation for the whole of your life. It literally penetrates mind, will, body, and soul. Young parents, do I get amen from any of you on this? Yes, you know all about this actually interact with any family physician and they'll tell you the volume of people that sit in their offices where one of the core issues has to do with a lack of a healthy pattern of physical rest. It's epidemic. James Bryan Smith says it this way in his book, The Good and Beautiful God. He said, exhaustion is the greatest enemy to Christian spiritual formation today. How about that statement? Exhaustion is the greatest enemy to Christian spiritual formation today. So we wanna lift up the spiritual practice of sleep combined with what did Jesus do? Mark two, verse 27, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Sabbath comes from the word Shabbat. It means to cease, to stop. It's rooted in Genesis 1. The pattern of the Sabbath, pattern of Genesis 1 is work, produce, accomplish, create for six. Get after it for six. Be productive for six days. Then rest, replenish, renew for one. Sabbath. Six and one. Six and one. You don't stop because you've got everything done in your life that says, okay, everything's in order so I can stop. You stop because God says it's time to stop. That's Jesus' model. He had thousands of people clamoring for his attention, small things like healing them from diseases, setting them free from demons, rescuing them from eternal darkness, just small little agenda items he had before him, and he left those crowds and took a Sabbath. So sleep and Sabbath, I look at Jesus' life and I go, those are spiritual practices with direct effort that I can engage in, in the hands of the Spirit, in my ordinary everyday life circumstances, see some stuff change in this battle with perpetual exhaustion. Sleep and Sabbath. When we participate in sleep and Sabbath, two truths I left in your notes that we reaffirm and kind of preach to ourselves when we do this. The first thing we do when you lie down to sleep or when you take a Sabbath rest, the first thing you do is this. You say, God is the creator with infinite resources. I am a created being with limited energy and strength. Did you know that God never runs out, never burns out, never tires out? Do you know God never yawns? He never takes a nap. Do you know God can be three places at once and never in a hurry? That's God. That's not us. We are not God. He is. He's infinite. He has all power and authority. We're not. We're limited beings. Listen to how Wayne Mueller put it. I put this quote in your notes for you. If we do not allow for a rhythm of rest in our overly busy lives, illness becomes our Sabbath. Our pneumonia, our heart attack, our accidents create Sabbath for us. I read that years ago. I cannot tell you how many times I'm lying on my bed sick after some crazy month of whatever, and this phrase just keeps running around in my head. Illness becomes your Sabbath, Mr. Simpson, as you lay there and can't get out of bed because you're just so physically, so he'll just put you down sometimes and say, hey, you're gonna. he's going to shut you down. That's part of the rhythm. That's part of the way he's wired us. So what you reaffirm when you stop for Sabbath or you stop to sleep is, God is the creator with infinite resources and you reaffirm this. God is the sustainer of all things and therefore this world will run fine without me. See, we can get a little mixed up about our role in this life with stuff. We can we get a little bit of a messiah complex at times like, oh my goodness, I got to come through in that situation. I got to rescue that, I got to fix that. If I don't, oh that thing's going to crash and burn. Do you know what? The world's going to go on just fine without us. Do you know that? All you have to do is when you hit some of those crises and you realize what you thought was, oh, I can't be away from the office for those number of days, the whole thing's gonna crash and burn and then something suddenly pulls you away and you realize when you get back, everything ran and it's really, it's really interesting when you get back and go, everything ran better. Ooh. That's a whole nother discussion. But my point is this, I think God says he built the body in such a way that says, hey, lie down, go to sleep and reaffirm this, I am infinite and you are not. I have unlimited resources and you don't. Lie down and rest. Be replenished. And remember, you live and move and have your being in me. I'm the sustainer of all things. This world will run just fine without you. Go to sleep, take a Sabbath. When you reengage, you'll see. We reaffirm those things when we sleep and when we take a Sabbath. So we're gonna practice it this week. Here's the assignment for the week ahead under the sleep and the Sabbath. The first thing is, and this is where young moms, young families, single moms, we're gonna need to help each other out. That there is one day in the next seven, I would like for all of us to experience a night of sleep with no alarm clock forcing you to wake up. Now, some of you have little alarm clocks with diapers that don't have anything to do with electronic thing. They just run around and they wake you up when they wanna get up. So this is when we need to help each other. Mom, dad, serve each other in this. Give mom a restful night. Mom, give dad a restful night. Figure it out. If you're a single mom or single dad, this is where you rely on extended family or members of your life group. We can figure this out, right? Some kid's sleeping over at another house. You get creative, you figure it out. The whole point is this. Find one night in the next seven days where you actually go to bed guilt-free and you sleep as long as your body wants to sleep. Wouldn't that be something? Now, it'd be helpful if some of you got up like before one o'clock in the afternoon, but I'm just saying. <laughs> but that out of being a lot, al- like if you physically don't wake up until like 11 or noon, you go, what in the world? I think we should pay attention. Pay attention to a couple things, just how the experience was, but pay attention to how you feel, mind, body, soul, everything the next day. And just kind of pay attention to it. And then Sabbath. Here's what we're gonna do on the Sabbath front. One two-hour window in the next seven days, could be this afternoon, one two-hour window where you gather some close friends together or you gather your family together and you shut down the electronics, you turn down the noise, you actually sit at the dinner table, you face one another around the dinner table. You get a real simple meal. Do not put an exotic meal preparation on this thing. You put paper plates out, guilt-free. It's a wonderful thing. Plastic wear if you want to. You make it simple. You light a candle in the center of the table and you spend two hours, not just at the table, maybe the first hour at the table. Just talk. Specifically on this agenda item, look back over the past week or month and just say, where have you seen the goodness of God displayed in the past week? and go around the table and talk about it. Where have I seen the goodness of God displayed? Where has it shown up? Big or small? Doesn't matter. Just talk about it. Have a meal together. Talk about that. And then let the conversation linger into maybe you go around and talk about Some big things ahead in the week, maybe some things you'd like the family as a whole to just kind of be praying about. Could be kids with school stuff, could be mom or dad with work stuff, could be family pressures. You have a conversation around the table about, hey, how can we kind of support one another and pray for one another in the week ahead? Wouldn't that be a good conversation to have? And yes, parents, even when your kids are quite young, I wanna encourage you to do this, engage. Peas might be flying around, you know, that's just part of it. But just embrace some of the chaos of that, just, just to involve them with that. And the spirit of that two hours, I think Wayne Mueller's quote addresses best for us. I put this in your notes. Light a candle, alone or with friends. Let each of you speak about those things that are left to do. And as the candle burns, allow the cares to melt away. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, said Jesus. The worries of today are sufficient for today. Whatever remains to be done for now, let it be. It will not get done tonight. In Sabbath time, we take our hand off the plow and allow God to care for what is needed. Let it be, just let it be. Does that sound good? Give it a try. Two hours. Can you do that somewhere? Maybe this afternoon, tonight, maybe one night this week, sometime in the next seven days. Let's work the muscles of sleep and Sabbath. Or, or, walk out the door and continue to live in cycles of perpetual exhaustion. The choice is yours and the choice is mine. If you haven't noticed this about God, he doesn't particularly barge in on our lives. He'll let us live in such a way that we're sleeping at the charging station in the mall. And then he'll gently come beside us and say, "Uh, Mr. Simpson, would you like to learn about a new way to live? It's called the restfulness of Jesus. You receive it as a gift and you learn it as a lifestyle. There is another way to go about this. And you will notice the noise and your chaos of your life probably won't change, but what is going to change? The changing component will be you in it. That's everyday life with Jesus. Let's pray. Worship team, why don't you come on up? Lord, Would you help us as we journey through this series together, through Lent, as we think about change and we look at your life and we're captivated by who you are and how you lived and we're challenged on the areas you wanna grow and change in us and would you give us strength and power by the Holy Spirit? Would you open our eyes to see clearly our life circumstances and what you're trying to teach us in the circumstances, good, bad, or ordinary? And then would you help us Put into practice things like setting our mind on things above with Psalm 23, 1 and 2 this week. And would you help us experience a night of sleep? That's what the scriptures talk about when the psalmist says, you will lie down and sleep in perfect peace. And then would you teach us how to live in Sabbath rhythm, to pause and to be replenished Lord, some of us just need a yoke of exhaustion and over-scheduled and overloaded lives broken off of us. In Jesus' name, would you break us out of the yoke of the oughts and the shoulds that lead us to this over, this too much life. And help us to experience the yoke of Jesus and receive the gift of rest. We come to you. Open hearts, open hands, expectant and receptive. In Jesus' name, amen.